welcome back to another edition of the Designated for Assignment podcast. Rob Long, Josh Goldberg with you. As always, you can get us on Twitter at DFA underscore pod, at Rob Long 34, and at Goldberg 12 The Blue Jays officially in to the All-Star break as they get a little bit of well-deserved time off following their 5-1 and one homestand with wins against the Phillies and the Kansas City Royals, even though that series started off on the uh, right foot as the Blue Jays lost the series opener there. We will get into the day-to-day stuff with regards to the Blue Jays, but a lot to get uh, on with the team as, of course, manager Charlie Montoyo was let go last week, replaced by uh, interim manager John Schneider, who was already on Montoyo's staff. There's a lot of talk about Juan Soto, which we'll get into as well. The MLB draft has uh, wrapped up. The Blue Jays making a couple of interesting picks on day number one. But, uh, Josh, we will spend the majority of the first half of this program, of course, talking about the managerial change, which uh, a couple of weeks ago, you and I did a podcast and we spoke about it. I was in the firm camp that I did not expect a move to be made. You said, you know, unless they lose every game for the rest of the next little stretch here, then obviously they're going to be put in a spot where maybe they have to do something. But uh, I think we were both in agreement that if a move was going to be made, it was going to be at the end of the season, but uh, go figure a move is made like a few days after we record that podcast coming as an initial shock, I think for, for people that didn't think it was going to happen, but once you start hearing the stories and reports that come out, you start to understand, you know, why a move was ultimately made. Yeah. I, I, Honestly, I think I was just more surprised in the moment that it actually did happen the way that it did the timing, you know, a couple of days after uh, the Julia Budzinski funeral, they had won the night before against the Phillies, albeit in not a particularly convincing fashion. And like, I, once you sort of zoom out a little bit and, and you look at it, yeah, it shouldn't really have come as that much of a surprise. It was a little bit eye-opening that there was all these rumblings coming out after the fact about, you know, had he lost the clubhouse, had had guys started tuning him out. You know, there's some, I think it was Ryan Divish in Seattle, Seattle Times got the impression that, you know, that might have happened when he was there in Seattle. It just didn't look like maybe there was a connection anymore. Jeff Passan also sort of said the same thing. Maybe he had been hearing that. And if that's the case, then 100% you make the, make the change. If, if the message is not getting across anymore and you're losing games, then, you know, that's basically it for a manager. And, and that's where I'm always at with managers. Like if, if their message is not hitting home the same way, the guys aren't responding necessarily then you got to make a change. I think um, like, I think I come back cross sport analogy. Like even when you're winning, like the Cleveland Cavaliers, the year they won a championship, they fired their coach, David Blatt at the time, because it just, he wasn't reaching the guys and they ended up going on to win a championship. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but that sometimes happens when it comes to coaches or managers. It just, the message doesn't get across the same way anymore. And I, I don't really have an issue with it. You know, they did get the the huge initial bump. You know, they won five of six. It wasn't great. You know, a lot of the wins, but still you, you want five and one um, or four and one rather uh, after making the switch. So I, I, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens here over the remainder, like what Schneider does or doesn't have to do in order to put himself in the best position to have the gig beyond just this season. But I, I don't know what your take is on it. I'm, in hindsight, just surprised that they brought him back at all and gave him that kind of lame duck extension just to take the, the one year off like he would have been done at the end of the year in terms of his contractual status. They tack on a year, two club options. Like that's not a ringing endorsement for me of your belief in your guy that you brought in here. And if you're not handing him a guaranteed multi-year extension coming off of a near playoff season, navigating a lot of trouble last year. What does that say? Like, why did you bring him back in the first place? Because it almost seemed like you brought him back to scapegoat him Mm -hmm. uh, to be the first guy to fall when you needed to make some sort of shift or shake up or something like that. And I just don't understand. Like if you had even a sliver or more of doubt, why not just rip the bandaid off and give Schneider most likely a full, off season, even though it was truncated by the, the lockout, a full season just to see what he's all about instead of throwing him into the deep end here um, as a first time manager with expectations with a floundering team. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I, I think that's probably what it was that, you know, if they needed to make 
a move in season to shake things up or whatever, then, you know, they had Charlie there to, to be that scapegoat, which is, you know, unfortunate because nobody, you know, deserves to be put in that spot, but that's just how the business of sports works, unfortunately, from, from time to time. And, you know, I do believe Ross Atkins, when he said we wanted it to work uh, with Charlie, I mean, they ultimately chose him to be their manager. Um, and he went through that rough initial season where they lost 95 games. And then the last couple of years, they obviously, you know, bounced back. They, they had the one playoff appearance in the truncated season. And the last year, they were one game shy. Um, I think it was our buddy, Mike Wilner. I was listening to his podcast the other day. And he said, basically, you know, since that 95 loss season, the Blue Jays have never had a losing month under Charlie. So some months haven't been great. Uh, it's been tough, but they've never been under 500. They've either been at 500 uh, or better. Now, granted, the team has gotten a lot better than that 2019 disaster uh, that we all had to uh, witness and watch on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, it, it's just a situation where, you know, without any inside information, you know, just trying to read all the articles out there, trying to read the tea leaves, you know, listen to the players talk and listen to Ross Atkins talk. I know he didn't give much away. No, he didn't. Um, he was asked straight up, you know, is this a situation where Charlie lost the clubhouse? And he said, no. And he just kind of left it at that. And it was just sort of like, yeah, I don't know, because we're getting all these reports and tweets from people saying that that's not necessarily the case. But just from what I am trying to gather from all the information that's out there publicly is that, you know, there was a faction of the team that just probably wasn't particularly happy with um, Charlie anymore. Um, you know, how vocal that minority was or majority, like, I guess we'll, we'll never know. I don't think it was a personal thing. It just was a situation where, like you said, the vibes were bad. The team was losing a lot of games. Um, Charlie's the, you know, utmost optimist forever optimist. And the guys were just sort of like, that's great, but like, we kind of need something else here. You can't just keep telling us like, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, there was an accountability, issue seemingly in the clubhouse where I think some players wanted Charlie to hold other guys accountable and whether that's just not his nature or he didn't feel it was necessary, you know, that seemed to be an issue too, uh, because now we hear in hindsight, people saying, you know, John Schneider is a guy that will, you know, have your back obviously, but he'll also kick you in the ass if you need that. So um, he obviously differs from Charlie in that sense, but just, just overall, I mean, it's an unfortunate spot for, for Charlie to be in by all accounts, a super good guy. Uh, I didn't have a ton of run in, Uh, with him previously but everybody you talk to says just an incredible person Uh, but sometimes changes need to happen and you know it just came to a head ultimately yeah I think that that's fundamentally what it was and like looking back on it I feel like the the whole Kevin Gosman shift thing like I don't know if I'm reading too much into that but like they stopped shifting like how much of that was Gosman just being like what the fuck why are you shifting so much? Let's move away from this. And then he started having better results. Like I, I and you know, Bo Bichette afterwards, I understand, you know, I, I thought that they were eye-opening comments. And then, you know, some people disagreed with me. Like I'm usually an athlete in this day and age is pretty cognizant of what they say or, or how it might be, you know, construed or misconstrued or what have you like Bo basically saying, yeah, I didn't, disagree with the decision and basically endorsing the fact that a managerial change was the right move that definitely took me by surprise a little bit. It's uncharacteristic for athletes of this age, I think, to really go outside the box when it comes to something like that. Usually you just, you wish the guy, well, you know, you take some of the ownership, you know, we didn't play our best and it unfortunately led to the manager losing his job but that wasn't the case Bo's got to play better like the guy's got to start playing better like that you you remove a layer of protection when you fire the manager to some extent like now the players are always going to wear it to varying degrees like depends who you talk to but they should always be at the foreground the forefront of you know blame or credit or what have you because they're ultimately who drives the bus you're only going to go as far as your players take you you know, the manager, I think, and especially in baseball, you know me, I'm not really a big manager brings that much to the table in terms of wins and losses. Like you manage a decent bullpen, you know, you manage the right clubhouse. Like, I think you can be a contributor, but like, I don't think that a great manager is going to give you 10 extra wins or something like that no. uh, in a given season. But now the front office, I think is squarely in the crosshairs again. Like we talked about this, uh, you know, last year and, and this year as well. 
a lot of people had desoured and sweetened on the front office as opposed to, well, Shatkins this and Shatkins that, you know, people were starting to you know, kind of come around a little bit. And then, you know, as the team has faltered a little bit, there was the, well, you know, the off season wasn't great. And we're starting to hear more of, well, you didn't do enough to address the bullpen and why the fuck did you hand Kikuchi $36 million. Like now they're starting to, you know, get back into the sight lines a little bit of fans and media as well, where, you know, Charlie is gone. Your handpicked guy is gone. Another one of your handpicked guys ish in Schneider is now, you know, the manager, but they're going to take a lot of heat and deservedly. So if this season ends up falling short of expectations, depending on whose expectations you're talking about, like if they don't win, I think at least if they don't advance to at least the division series, bare minimum, I think that's a disappointing season for basically everyone. Then I think there are going to be some hard questions asked about like, you know, you didn't do enough. And why should I have faith in you when you never invest in a bullpen? You never really give term to anyone. You never make risky bets in the bullpen that, that could pay off. Like, why should I feel confident when you haven't done it in the past that you're going to go out forcefully and make the right moves to address the team and the weaknesses so you're not in the same position at this time 12 months from now? Yeah, we, I mean, weirdly, with regards to this front office, I agree. I mean, they are back in the crosshairs once again. The straight deadline is going to be massive, and it's yeah. going to shift a, a lot of the fans' views, I think, on the front office once again, depending on what they ultimately do, um, good or bad. Um, but but I'm also in the camp that I don't think, you know, if they miss the playoffs this year or if they go far in the playoffs, it necessarily, you know, shifts their um, timeline um, as far as, you know, with this franchise. Like, I don't think Ross Atkins' jo job is in jeopardy if they miss the playoffs this year, um, even next year. I think this ownership has been sold on Mark Shapiro's vision and yeah. Ross Atkins is included uh, in that. And, you know, for me, I'm honestly looking at the next three to four years. And I think, you know, these two guys are going to be the front office for the next three to four years. Um, whether people like that or they don't, I think, you know, they have sold a vision to Rogers and, you know, the player development and they've done so much work and Mark Shapiro has specifically, you know, with Dunedin and everything there, yeah. you know, we see a guy, we'll talk about the draft a little bit later, but when you see a guy like Tucker Toman, a guy who was projected to go in the first round, get picked by the Blue Jays, you know, with the 77th pick. And he's saying like, yeah, I only wanted to play for yeah. a team like the Blue Jays because yeah. of their player development staff and the way they, you know, get guys to the major leagues. <laughs> it's like, that's a glowing review for, yep. you know, the front office player development and, you know, all of the stuff that they do. So, um, you know, we like to think of it just as the major league uh, team. And obviously that's what it's all about. That is the end product, but there's so many other things that are going yep. on um, with this organization that are good, that, you know, it's doesn't necessarily all just hinge on, you know, what happens at the, at the major league level, as weird as that is to say. Um, so, yeah, I, I think ultimately, you know, they're in a spot where the heat is back on a little bit. It's a little bit lukewarm on Ross Atkins yeah. um, right now. But uh, for people that think, you know, he's done at the end of this year or next year, if the Blue Jays just fall in their face. Like, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't see that happening. No, I would say there's a 0% chance Ross Atkins is losing his job at the end of the season. He just signed, I believe, a five-year extension. Like, you don't can guys into a five-year extension. Somebody would be like, oh, well, they just signed Charlie to an extension. Well, apples and oranges. One was a one-year extension, essentially, and a five-year extension. That's A five-year extension is a sign of faith and commitment that you trust in this person to do their task, their duties. And Ross Atkins, a five-year extension is, well, we are very confident in Ross Atkins' ability to lead this club going forward and make the right moves. And this year has been to me so far, it's not finished and incomplete, but up until this point, I would say it's been a misfire, you know, uh, like there've been some decent moves. The Gosman signing, I think was a good one. Robbie Ray has been great lately, but that's a wash, you know, Simeon. I don't think that you weren't, you just weren't going to that level. So I don't really have an issue with it. I like the Chapman trade. I understand that, uh, you know, he's been inconsistent and statistically speaking is having his worst defensive year, uh, I think ever, but he's still an impactful player and he really didn't give up that much in the now and who knows about, you know, what Gunnar Hoagland might be. 
but the bullpen, we, you know, we're beating a dead horse. It's just not enough was done. And you're counting on guys who, you know, were probably long shots to replicate that level of success that they had last year. You know, we weren't expecting Trevor Richards to just become not usable and that happened, but that's what happens sometimes with certain types of relievers who throw a certain way when you don't have that powerful stuff that can be, you know, translatable year to year, you walk a bit more of a tightrope and you can be prone to these situations. So, you know, there, there have definitely been some issues this year and you're right that the deadline is going to be massive and going five and one on the homestand and four and one um, under Schneider definitely helps. They're in a playoff spot. I think they've got a two game bulge now on, on everyone else. If before the separator and the wild card, like you got to be aggressive. Like I'm not saying you trade everything this year. You empty the chamber. Wow. Maybe for well, one Soto. Maybe for one <laughs> Soto. But you got to be super aggressive this year. Like there can't be any, you know, you know, clutching on to things here. Like this is a season to go for it. I, I understand people will say, well, they're not a real world series contender. Like the window to win is right now. It is right now. And for the next little while, or hopefully longer while, but at least the next little while, you have to do what you can to make sure that your roster is at its absolute peak come August 3rd for the last two months of the season. Yeah, I was going to say, we may be talking about uh, emptying the chamber here uh, in a few moments, but I do want to wrap up on on all the managerial talk. I mean, quickly, with regards to Charlie, I mean, how do you view his tenure, three-plus years, 236, 236, 500 uh, on the dot? It just reminds me of when people used to talk about A.J. Burnett. Why do you want this guy? He's a 500 pitcher. Yeah. This guy stinks. <laughs> like, yeah, just what it reminds me of. Charlie Montoyo, he's a 500 <laughs> manager. Like, this guy's uh, garbage. But, you know, w- when you think of Charlie Montoyo and these last three, uh, three, four seasons, you know, what, what kind of stands out to you? What will you remember the most about his tenure? Well, I like I won't miss the tweets now every time they lose, you know, people sing Montoya like that is at least uh, somewhat of a just let's move on from that. But like it was an imperfect tenure. Like I think that he was a, a solid choice for where the club was in coming off of the John Gibbons era into 2019. Like he grinded. He deserved an opportunity. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I do think that. You know, I I sometimes look at this as sort of a similar situation to what happened to Houston Astros. Like they had Bo Porter as they were getting closer to being competitive and then they can Bo Porter for AJ Hinch. And I understand, you know, they ended up cheating and a whole scandal, but that was still a talented team on an upward trajectory. And Bo Porter got them to a certain point. And then maybe you just, you need a different voice to get you the rest of the way. And is that John Schneider? I don't know. But I don't think Charlie, I never really felt like Charlie was going to be the guy that got them to consistent World Series contention. Like, I I think that he's a a solid baseball man, you know, tactician wise, leaves something to be desired uh, from time to time. Do I think he's going to get another managerial job? I would say 50, 50, maybe at best, like he might just be one of those bench coach types more than a manager. Like it wouldn't surprise me if a young team that is looking for somebody to help them, you know, grow a little bit, looks at him as a possibility, but I would right now, I'd probably be more surprised if he did get another managerial job than not. Yeah, I think I'd be a little bit surprised too. I mean, with the way the teams are trending these days, you know, they seem to be going with more younger guys, you know, sort of outside the box. You're not exactly, you know, outside of, I guess, Dusty Baker. I mean, teams aren't exactly, you know, looking for baseball lifers to to be manage, managing their teams uh, at this point, at least, you know, some of the, the new sort of analytical um, teams. But yeah, I, I think you kind of hit it on the head there with Charlie. These seasons, he was brought in to do a job and that was kind of to shepherd the young kids, you know, get them prepared for major league life. Um, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I, I feel bad for him because I wonder last year, you know, the, the team comes back and, you know, they're having this incredible summer. And we all remember the video of Charlie in the first game back in Toronto and they show him like on the video board and like he's holding back tears because he's so happy to be uh, back a couple of years ago. Right. We all remember that, that video, but I think about last year and I go, man, if they, 
had uh, that one game and they make the playoffs last year and they just do anything, right? Like, do people feel differently about Charlie Montoyo if they get into a DS and they make it competitive or they actually get to a CS? God forbid a World Series last year because they had the talent to do it, um, you know, with the way that they were playing down the stretch. And that's to me, it's like one of those what ifs, right? Like, we'll never know, obviously, but. I kind of feel, you know, we saw with John Gibbons, right? Everybody hated John Gibbons until 2015 yep. and 2016. And everybody think, you know, I was where, I mean, what was it? The Russell Martin's, uh, you know, ceremony on Canada day, Gibby pops up on the screen and everybody loses their shit. And already he's just talking to, the, to Russ Martin. I'm thinking, God, if you showed this video in like 2014, people have been like, get this guy on the fucking <laughs> jumbotron. Like yeah. why is Gibby here? So I think in the same way of Charlie, I'm like, people are so down on him. He makes the playoffs last year again, and you know the Jays go on some kind of crazy run. Like I think we're just talking differently about how how we kind of view him, obviously, because he would have made the playoffs and and done something. But yeah, like they were one game away from maybe changing the Charlie Montoyo narrative. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I do think you know Gibby the shtick, Gibby shtick really endeared him to a lot of fans. Like they like that, you know, like his lean and the saunter out to the mound and the and the southern twang. The, and but. You know, they liked it because they were winning 100%. No question about it. And, you know, like you think back to last year and, oh, you know, the way Charlie managed the bullpen, 100%. There were some brutal decisions like uh, using, who am I thinking of? Uh, oh, God. Tyler Chatwood, Jeremy yeah, Beasley. Uh, the, who the, was that guy? The lefty. Uh, that oh, that yeah. blue one. He All he threw was a fastball. I, I can't I can't remember who it is. I I'll, I'll look I, it up for you because I, I blocked I, it out of I, my mind. I have blocked it out of my mind as well. I know there's people listening right now that are screaming the name because yes. they cannot get that out of their memory. <laughs> um, but as I look at it right now, I will find it in just a few moments here. It is the guy that we are thinking of is, oh boy, uh, as I scroll down, I think I've scrolled down quite a bit here. Travis Bergen. That's the guy. There you go. Yeah. So like, you know, there were some, some poor decisions last year, but at the same time, like, you know, for the first half of the season, who's Sparky Anderson wasn't going to be able to manage that fucking bullpen. It was a tire fire, sort of the same way this year to an extent was like, you know, you, you, Play the hand that you're dealt from time to time. You, he is not, you know, blameless. Like there are some missteps, mistakes. Like I said, but this is like the the front office has to put the roster in place to manage, and especially the bullpen. And you just keep coming back to the bullpen because it's unavoidable. It just is very difficult to make the right decisions all the time with a bullpen that just. You know, you you're bringing a knife to a to a to a grenade fight. Like I, I don't know. Like it's just it's very difficult. Um, you know, when you don't have the horses back there to get the job done, and like that's where I, you know, don't throw the book at him. I think the same way a lot of people do. Like, yeah, he was definitely far from perfect, but you know, there were plenty of times where it was just like, what would you like him to do in those situations with the the arms that were available. All right. So finally, uh, John Schneider takes over. And as you said, you know, doesn't really make a huge difference in your mind, you know, changing the manager. Obviously, he has a familiarity with a lot of these guys uh, was, you know, the manager of some of these championship winning teams down in Dunedin um, a few years ago with all these guys, whether it's Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you know, Jordan Romano. He knows these guys, Danny Jansen. They have a longtime uh, relationship and that obviously played a role in John getting this opportunity. I, uh, you know, can you even remember 2019, there was a small vocal crowd chanting, you know, John Schneider, we want him to be the manager of this team instead of Charlie Montoyo. But at that time, I mean, I think it'd be pretty unprecedented to just vault a guy from, you know, single A up to uh, the major leagues to manage a team. And, you know, I'm sure if you gave John the truth serum, if you said, you know, do you feel more prepared to do it now than if they had given you the job in 2019? I'm sure he would say yes. I mean, this is something that he's always been um, working towards. But now that he's been on this staff for the last few years now, he, you know, understands the day to day grind of what it takes to be a manager just from watching Charlie. Obviously, it's a little bit different when you're in the big chair. Um, but if there was a guy, I mean, internally or, you know, uh, within the organization that you could have pegged as the guy to take over right now, I mean, this is about as good of a choice as you would think, uh, especially with all those pre-existing relationships. Yeah, I think that, you know, considering the circumstances, it's it's pretty seamless. And I, I do think that there is an element of, you know, in certain situations, like with Schneider, sort of the de facto guy that people turn to already, I mm -hmm. think that, 
you know, as we're starting to hear more details, that might have been the case. So it's probably not going to be that much of a of a transition. I, I do like the the way he, you know, kind of carries himself, which I, I do think counts for something when it comes to a manager. He's already, I think there's been some some head scratchers like using Anthony Bonda in the ninth inning of a 2-1 game was egregious and he gave up a home run. I understand. Oh, well, we like the matchup. You know, Bonda's a jobber. Like let's 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 call a spade a spade. He's not a guy that you want to trust really in any situation. And it ended up you know, kind of hurt, hurt you. You gave up a big run in a one run ball game and uh, that was pretty much it. So, you know, like that wasn't great, but you know, like he tossed on a couple of hit and runs, which will get, you know, old school baseball fans all hot and bothered, oh, yeah. soul and bases, but like, you know, it's window dressing to me. Like, yeah, sure. You push the right buttons from time to time. The players just have to start playing better. And as, as much as you could look at a four and one start with Schneider and a five and one road, a homestand, as them playing better. I didn't think that they played particularly well. Like they were fortunate to, you know, not have lost three out of four to the triple a Royals. They ended up winning three out of four. And, you know, you sometimes you need a little bit of those breaks to go your way over a course of 162, but they still have to play a whole heck of a lot better uh, than they have even over these last four or five games. One thing that I just can't stop thinking about, and I, and I'm trying to like, not read into it, but read into it at the same time is the fact that, you know, two days after the managerial change is made, John Schneider flips the lineup and it's Flatty yeah. batting second, Kirk third, Bo fourth. And he comes out and says, yeah, I've been talking to these guys about it for like a few weeks, been thinking about it. And, you know, they were on board and I'm thinking, okay, what does that say? Is that yes, like yeah. a situation where, you know, Charlie, maybe he, you know, John recommended it to him and he was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just kind of want to keep it where they're going. They'll figure it out. Let's just leave it the way it is. Is it a case where, you know, maybe Charlie tried to talk to these guys and they weren't as receptive, but they were more receptive to John. How much say did the front office have in all this stuff? Like, I, I don't think we're talking enough about this lineup change, uh, it's the much more optimal lineup, obviously, to have Laddie batting second. I kind of quibble a little bit with Kirk third only because, um, you know, he's a guy that doesn't run particularly fast. So uh, you need a couple of base hits to score him, if not a double or a homer, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just I can't stop thinking about it. That, that's really what it comes down to. Like, I'm trying to not be a conspiracy theorist about this lineup. But uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I was definitely I, that's a very good point, because like, you know, who's in the works? Like, were you going behind Charlie's back? Like, was Charlie not on board with it? It's very interesting that it happened. Uh, as quickly as it did, you know, I I'm all for it. I know Vladdy has been inconsistent this year, but I still think getting him as many at bats as possible is ideal. And uh, I'm with you, Kirk in the three hole, you know, the double play possibilities and, and not running well are maybe magnified a bit in that situation. Like, I don't really get why Bo Bichette is cleaning up over Teoscar. I understand Teoscar's raking right now wherever he hits, but I have maintained that I think Teoscar should clean up if he's in the lineup. He's who I want uh, cleaning up. So, like, maybe Bo bats fifth. The way he's been inconsistent right now, you, you could maybe even make an argument that he should be batting lower. Like, does yeah. he bat sixth? Maybe Guriel bats fifth instead, and Chapman continues to bat seventh. Like, aside, you can quibble all you want. I do think that... You know, having a Springer Vladdy one, two is an ideal configuration. And hopefully they run with that for a long time. It sounds like it's not going to be a short term situation. So, you know, we'll see how it the fruits end up, you know, kind of uh, sprouting off here and, and turning into something. But I'll be curious if, if Bo doesn't find it, does he end up, you know, bumping down a little bit further, at least to five and, and you move to Oscar up to four because uh I want Tay Oscar up in in run uh, driving in run situations, and I'd rather him right now by a large margin uh, over Bo. Now, I'll also add that you know Alejandro Kirk just like completely shit on her notion because uh, he came up to bat uh, yes. in Sunday on Sunday and hit that two run homer. If that's Bo Bichette, maybe that doesn't happen. So uh, it worked out in that sense as the uh, Blue Jays head into the All Star break with uh, three straight wins as they uh, are feeling pretty good uh, about themselves following this new managerial change. We will get to uh, your listener questions as well. And I think 
that's probably the biggest area where we'll uh, tackle all the Juan Soto stuff because a lot of people were uh, tweeting at us about uh, Soto. But just a quick thought here uh, on the draft that we saw on uh, Sunday and uh, Monday, Josh, we're not draft gurus by any means. I don't think you've ever watched Brandon uh, Barriera pitch or uh, Tucker Tolman swing a bat, neither have I, but I, I just think it is, you know, interesting uh, the direction that the Blue Jays seem to be going in just from, you know, the prospect evaluators that um, I, I'm reading about, you know, with regards to Brandon Barriera, you know, high school pitcher, very much in the Ricky Tiedemann mold, which definitely, you know, gets your eyes bulging out of your head because we see uh, Tiedemann where he's going right now and reports out there that he's probably heading to double A um, after the all-star break, uh, which is pretty impressive for a guy that started the season in a ball and was drafted only what like uh was it last year that he was drafted two years ago right because uh, he had the missed season um so a pretty meteoric rise for him uh but like we said before a guy like tucker toman a uh, guy projected to go in the first round is obviously able to work his way into a spot where he gets picked by the jays and he's like yep i uh, always wanted to be here um very similar i guess to bo bichette the year that the Blue Jays picked him where he kind of worked his way to an organization that uh, didn't want to change too much of what he did. And obviously that has worked out well um, for the Blue Jays. But again, this just kind of gets back to this developmental system that this franchise has. And yeah, they are doing some things right now down in the minors. Be nice if some of those guys could be uh, close to the major leagues. Seems like yeah. the, the majority of them are further away a year or two, but hard to quibble with uh, what uh, Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins, Shane Farrell. I mean, the whole developmental system is doing right now. Yeah. And it, it speaks back to, you know, more layers to a front office than just, you know, trades and signings for your big league club. Like you're developing and drafting certain players. And I, this is why I always say, like, why don't, why don't you try and become model yourself after the Dodgers to some extent? And you just, you trust your system and your evaluators to continue to stock the pipeline year after year after year, you know, whether it's the draft, we'll see what happens with international free agency. Like, is there going to be an international draft or not? How much that maybe changes the equation, but how, however you bring them in, and then, you know, you graduate some and then you trade others. Like, look at the Dodgers They're making monster trades every year and being in position to make monster trades every year because they keep developing, drafting the right prospects who appeal to other teams. And like, I'm of the mind that the majority, perhaps even the vast majority of your prospects are drafted in some way uh, to serve as trade chips. And, you know, the Jays have done a better job of tapping into that. And like you said, Tiedemann going from throwing low 90s as a teenager to now he's, you know, mid and, and even high touching. Uh, like it speaks to the work that they do and the ability to, you know, develop their mechanics and their body to get them maximizing their efficiency and their productivity and, and ideally their potential. And this Barriera fellow looks to be sort of of the same mold. And it seems like they're prioritizing contact skills a little bit more than like you think back to the Griffin Conine pick where it was just power and not much else. And, you know, I understand that the game has a bit too much of that for some people where it's power, three true outcomes, that sort of thing. You know, like maybe the Blue Jays are trying to say, well, you know, we can develop into power, bring contact skills, bring on base skills. Like that's not a perfect model. We've seen what's happened with Austin Martin. It may never come. Uh, or, or it may not come the way that you desired, but I'd rather like a strong base of offensive skills than a feast or famine situation. And it does seem like they're trying to prioritize that a little bit more. And they have a focus on what they want to accomplish in the draft, which usually leads you to uh, having good success. Yeah, it's a, it's a great sign that the the Blue Jays are sticking to their guns here and you know trying to find the uh, inefficiencies. Now, every team, every organization for the most part is doing that, so it's, you know, pretty, you know, slim margins when everybody's working with a lot of the the same data, but uh, if your player development system is better than some of these organizations, you're going to be able to squeeze out a lot more uh, than some of these franchises that are not spending as much money on uh, getting their prospects to the major leagues. All right, it is time to get to listener questions. As always, you can find us at DFA underscore pod at Rob Wong three, four at Jay Goldberg 12. And of course we got a lot of questions this weekend about what else? Juan Soto, the story that has taken the baseball world 
by Storm, the Washington Nationals offering just him uh, an absolute boatload of money. He ultimately rejects that offer. Uh, I did see a report from uh, our buddy Hector Gomez, who uh, said that uh, the Nats are going to try one more time with a bit of a better offer, and that if they can't uh, get a deal done, then they uh, will look to trade Soto. And everybody wondering, you know, what could the Blue Jays potentially offer the Washington Nationals to uh, land a guy who's got two and a half years left of control, um, is still one of the premier hitters in all of the game. You could make the case when he's at his peak, he is the best hitter in all yep. of baseball. There's a lot of guys that uh, are battling for that crown, um, obviously. But, you know, I said it in a tweet when the story first came out, anything the Nats want, they can have outside of Vlad and Manoa. You want Tiedemann, uh, you want Bo, you want Aralvis Martinez, you want Gabby Moreno, uh, you anybody except the home plate lady, Vlad and Manoa. Got to keep home plate lady for the vibes. Uh, she yeah. can't go anywhere. She needs no. to witness the Juan Soto homers um, at Rogers Center uh, later this season. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And as you said before, it is their championship window right now for the next three to four seasons. And I get it. They have, you know, issues with the rotation. They've got issues with the bullpen. But like you always say, too, that doesn't preclude you from making a separate no. trade. Sure, you may end up moving uh, six or seven guys to get Juan Soto, but you can still move other pieces in your farm system to get those pitchers. Uh, maybe they're not the Luis Castillos of the world or the David Bednars, but you're going to be able to get you know pitchers, right? We saw it last year. The Blue Jays traded goddamn Joe Panic and were able to get yeah, Adam yeah. Simber and Corey Dickerson. Yeah. Now that was, you know, something sketchy was going on there with the Marlins. Not sure uh, why they wanted to do that, but that's just kind of the reality that you don't have to move um, your A plus blue chippers to, to get some of these guys. And I don't know if you would, right? I, I've said it before. Do I want to move a Martinez for half a season of David Robertson? No, I don't. Like that's a poor use of your prospect capital. You're more looking to move you know, your B-level guys, some of your C-plus level guys to, to get some of those, um, you know, relievers that can come in. And, and maybe that's not the sexiest option, but you know what is the sexy option? Getting a generational talent like Juan Soto yes. uh, for two and a half years in your championship window. Yeah, like I, I'm all for trading for Juan Soto. Like a lot of people have said to me like, well, you know, you're a good offensive team. You don't need Juan Soto. Everyone needs Juan Soto. Everyone, every team within reason is going to do due due diligence on Juan Soto. You, you owe it to yourself as a front office executive. You're going to do some research. You might make a call. He's that good. He's 23 years old. He's younger than a bunch of guys who are in a futures game for Christ's sake. Like it's mind bending that he would be available. He instantly transforms your team. Like I understand, you know, he's not great defensively, who gives a shit? He is so good offensively and left-handed. And like, I, it's just would make you so much better. I understand. Got the farm system, got the farm system. What did I just say uh, about teams that, uh, you know, want to be contenders year in and year out? Even if you were to gut the farm system, you, you can still rebuild it. And it's worth it for a player of Juan Soto's ilk. So I'm with you. Like, you know, if an offer has to start around a Bo Bichette and a handful of other prospects, whatever, like, you know, sign me up. It's Juan Soto. Players like him don't become available every day. Even if he doesn't, you know, fit your prototype of what this club needs, he's still going to make you light years better. Yeah, and, and I get the hesitancy from a lot of people to want to move Bo Bichette. I mean, he's a young player as well. He has shown that he, you know, can be a well above average player. He's a fan favorite. You know, people love Bo and I get it. You've got an attachment to him and, and you don't want to move him. But we've seen it in the past with this organization when they were winning championships. They had to make some tough decisions. Nobody wanted to see Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez go for Joe Carter and Roberto Alomar. You know, Jeff Kent. I don't know. I guess, you know, prospects weren't the same back then. People didn't have as much access and knew everything about everyone but they traded a borderline hall of famer in Jeff Kent for half a season of David Cohn. They won a world series and nobody's been like, Oh God, I wish we kept Jeff Kent since then. Right? Like those are not conversations that are had because the blue Jays won it all. If you get Juan Soto, is it a guarantee you win the world series? Of course not. No. Anything can happen, but all of a sudden your team is, has a way better chance to win the world series um, with Juan Soto. So 
you know, while I am willing to give up anything and everything, I think there is a limit to, you know, moving players off your major league roster. Um, does it make your team, you know, better if you're trading, let's say, Bo Bichette, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and a bunch of other guys for Juan Soto? I mean, I think I still would do it, but I think you can at least make the argument that, yeah. you know, you're taking away two above average players to bring in one player um, that is exceptional, but is it, you know, is that worth it? Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, Lourdes and Bo for Juan Soto, obviously I make that trade, but there are other pieces that are in the works there, but that's kind of what I'm speaking of is, you know, how much is too much um, with regards to the major league roster to, to make this deal minor league roster, do whatever you want. You, you want to trade yeah. every single prospect you have. You want to rent out the Dunedin complex to the nationals yeah. for uh, a year to get the deal done. I'm fine with that. It's yeah. more, you know, the major league roster. How much are you willing to move to get something like this done? Because major league players are going to have to move in a deal for Juan Soto. Like, I don't think the Nats are just going to take, you know, the top five guys on the blue Jays prospect system. They're looking at a bow. They're going to ask about Vlad. They're going to ask about Alec Manoa. Like yeah. these are the tough conversations that if the blue Jays are serious about, they're going to have to have with uh, Mike Rizzo. Yeah. I think that there is a limit when it comes to major league talent. Like I'm not, I'm with you. I don't think I'm trading Manoa just because, you know, pitchers, once you develop them and they're here and they're young, I understand that you never know what can happen injuries, et cetera. But like Alec Manoa looks like a linchpin for a long, long time. And guys like that don't always come around or don't even often come around. So it's, that's a tougher sell, even for two plus years uh, of Juan Soto. Like Vladdy, I just, that's not happening. It's just not something that would be sensible. Like I, I, Juan Soto is a better player than Vladdy. Like I, I love Vladdy. He's incredible, but Juan Soto is just a, a better player. So, you know, one for one in a vacuum, you make that deal, but it's just, it's just this isn't a video game. That's not going to happen. And this is almost a video game type of trade because generally speaking, players like Juan Soto just do not become available uh, via trade. Like the Mookie Bet situation was a little bit different. He was a little bit older, had been around for a while. Uh, like it's still pretty crazy that that happened, but this is a 23-year-old. Uh, who is going to be entering free agency in his prime. It's just, it's unheard of uh, that it's happening. But I, I do agree that, you know, if you're talking about like, well, it's Bo, uh, Tay Oscar and Lourdes and four prospects for Juan Soto. Okay. You're probably not doing that. Yeah. I don't think that that would necessarily be a good move to make, but within reason uh, you make whatever deal is out there, whatever deal you feel like, uh, can get him without gutting everything, major league and minor league, then you go ahead and do it. But the Nats will not be out of line to ask for the moon, the stars, the sun, everything. Like they should be trying to get every available good asset that a team is prepared to trade and has to trade for a player of this caliber. Like to me, no ask is too outlandish. Like if a team doesn't want to do it, a team doesn't want to do it but you should be asking for everything and more from any team that's interested in Juan Soto. Yeah. And, and as great as, you know, some of the players are in the blue Jays system and Ricky, Ricky Tiedemann, Gabriel Moreno in the most recent baseball America top 100, you know, that's great. Or Elvis Martinez. I mean, there's question marks about him now with the season that he's having in double a Jordan Groshans has been sort of sliding down, you know, prospect list uh, the last uh, little while as well. I mean, there's just so much competition out there too, right? With the Padres who, you know, we've said it before, H.A. Preller, just the guy is just a drunken sailor. I mean, the guy will trade his family, I'm pretty sure, in a deal to get it done if he needs to make it. Uh, the Yankees have a ton of, you know, uber prospects like Jason Dominguez just crushing balls at the Futures game. I mean, the Dodgers are always going to be in the mix. Uh, St. Louis has a ton of young guys. So, yep. you know... I think for the Blue Jays, you know, they have a bunch of solid prospects and guys that the, the Nationals would be interested in. But if you compare them to some of the other systems, it does feel like they would have to give up an absolute ton. And I think they would um, have to give up, uh, whether it's a bow or, you know, somebody of that ilk to, to get it done because they just don't have the, the necessary young, you know, prospects and young stars to be able to compete, I think, with some of these other organizations. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think like you're looking at, farm system for farm system the jays are not in the same playing field ballpark as the top tier farm systems like they have a solid they have some solid prospects but 
you know, if another team builds their offer around prospects, they, they can outdo the Blue Jays. And then that, that's maybe where, like you said, it, it comes into a Bo Bichette kind of separates uh, a little bit. Like, what are the Yankees trading? They're trading all their prospects. Like, who off their roster? Do the Nats want Glaber Torres? You may be. Glaber Torres has rebuilt his stock a little bit. He's had a nice year after not struggling last year. He's still young, still has a, several years of control. Like, like I, a lot of people will say, well, you know, throw Tay Oscar into the mix. Like, why do the Nats want Tay Oscar? He's a year away from free agency. He does nothing for them. Even Lourdes, uh, sort of same situation. Why do they want him? I know he's on a team-friendly contract right now, but like, guys like that, like Bo Bichette, I know he's still got multiple years of arbitration. Maybe they look at him as somebody they say, okay, we'd be comfortable paying him, you know, 200 plus million, like uh, Bobish the days of the 300 plus million, he's going to have to play his way back into that conversation. Like right now, that's not realistic. Maybe they do say, you know, 200 million is something that we're comfortable doing. Maybe that can separate the blue Jays a little bit, but they're going to have to get super uncomfortable, especially this front office, the way I think we know them. If they are really serious about Juan Soto, it would represent a departure in character for them to aggressively deplete their and just basically facets of their organization for one player it's not really their they're in their dna it's not really ever been their mo yeah they they love their prospects <laughs> they love uh building up the depth in the minor leagues i mean ross atkins has been uh you know minor league uh you know uh, overseen a minor league system before you know mark mark shapiro has talked a lot in the past about you know prospects this was you know their plan right this is part of their plan to have um sort of a factory of young guys that can come in you know year after year after year just a conveyor belt of you know prospects that can help at the major league roster so you know it would be like you said a big departure for them Um, but at some point i mean you build it up so much when there are certain players that become available you have to strike. Um, and as we keep saying, I mean, this is their window, this next three to four years, maybe the blue Jays don't see it um, that the same way. Uh, but when you've got Vladdy and you've got Bo, you've got Manoa at his peak, you've, you know, signed Kevin Gossman and George Springer, you've made all these moves. I mean, what are you waiting for? Right? Like this is as be- a good of a time as any to try to get yourself over the hump. And if you win the world series within the next couple of years, you know, we talked earlier about Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro and maybe their shelf life with this team that buys you an extra what, like four or five years to just do whatever you want. Like people yeah. won't necessarily care. Maybe some will, um, but it just buys you more leeway to, to try to, you know, get back to being a championship team um, once again. So, you know, I, I would put the Blue Jays odds at making this deal very low um, just because of the competition from other teams. Um, and the Blue Jays seemingly um, hesitant to, you know, move some of their, you know, big time prospects. They obviously, you know, were able to identify things with Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson that didn't fit the bill. And they were able to make a great trade to land uh, Jose Barrios, who has obviously pitched a lot better of late. But uh, yeah, it's uh, they signed George Springer and they got Kevin Gossman. And I never thought that would happen. So, you know, maybe the Blue Jays have yeah. another uh, ace up their sleeve where they can get something done here with the Nationals. And we will just lose our collective minds and wonder how the heck that this actually happened, that Juan Soto is uh, hitting baseballs at uh, Rogers Center. But uh, we'll see. I mean, we're getting closer to the trade deadline. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of rumors out there uh, with regards to Soto and uh, what's going to happen. All right, let's get to uh, some other listener questions quickly here. Uh, I wanted to throw this one in there because there's been a ton of conversation about it. It's sort of a dumb throwaway thing, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, Brendan says, okay. uh, what are your thoughts on the home run jacket and or other home run celebrations that teams have? I tweeted it out today. A lot of people have issues with the home run jacket. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think part of it is because the team has underperformed and people hate seeing you know teams struggling and put on a a jacket to celebrate a homer when they're down you know eight one in a ball game but my god people like it like i've seen people say uh, somebody tweeted at me like oh they're it it matters more to them than you know cutting off uh, throws from the outfield or taking the extra base like uh, what the hell like (laughs) yeah (laughs) that actually crossed someone's mind that they care more about the jacket than the fundamentals of baseball like come on man Okay, so here's where I'm at with this. Like hitting home runs is always going to be hard. If you want to celebrate a home run, go for it. I'm all for it. And like I've always said, baseball needs more fun. Yeah, when you're if you're getting your doors blown off, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe the home run jacket's a bit lame. I, I might I might not rock it in that situation. 
they're like, you know, you've lost five in a row. You hit a home run to, to, you know, get off to a good start. Wear it. Like, I, I don't really care. I, it never bothers me. And it is dumbfounding to me how many people are triggered by it. It's just like every time, you know, you see it. Wow. Why aren't these guys more focused on winning ball games as opposed to putting that stupid jacket on? Like, it's just it just strikes me as old man shakes fist at cloud uh, thought process. And like, you know, it's not a perfect situation all the time. You know, maybe there are times where you might not want to see the jacket, but like at the end of the day, I don't really give a shit. Like even if you are down 10, nothing wear it, I don't care. Like it, it does nothing to me. It has no impact on me. I don't enjoy the game more or less as a result of it. These guys want to have some fun, have at it fire away no problem yeah celebrating fun things is fun and even when you're losing you know eight to one it can be something that maybe sparks the guys too right instead of just you know hitting a home run and just sulking and going back to the dugout like just get a little bit of energy in in the the dugout there maybe get the guys going so yeah the home run jacket it just bothers so many people i don't get it uh, but it's not going anywhere the, the blue jays have been doing it uh losing a bunch of games in oakland and seattle um, so they're not going to stop it now um, especially after they they uh, fire the manager uh we get one from here uh stewart says uh when are the jays cutting bait on bradley zimmer how does this guy keep an mlb job when he can't run the bases can bunt and only hits two-thirds of his weight fast as hell and can hit antithesis of kirk surely there must be a better option out there to uh, fill the roster spot i mean he can run uh, unfortunately yeah. he did get picked off uh, in yeah, that game yikes. on saturday which is not a good look uh, when you've been sitting on the bench and you come in you got one job don't get picked off and you get picked off uh but you know it, he does serve some value on this team he's a really strong defender i mean he's made some great catches in the outfield this year um has run the bases pretty strong too but i think as we you know approach the deadline and you know when we get past there i imagine there's going to be a replacement coming in i think the the blue jays um probably need a righty bat at this point off the bench i mean rymel tapia has played himself into that fourth outfielder spot um and yeah. he's been swinging it been making some great catches in the outfield too and i think he has sort of you know kind of taken bradley zimmer's spot in this roster so um i think we may get to a point where um yeah we're gonna look at be be looking at a different option um whether it's someone that usurps uh tapia and there's a better option over him uh, but I, I you know would be surprised if uh, bradley zimmer makes it through the entire season that's still on this roster yeah, I would too. I'm not as like, uh, you know, upset that he's stood or stuck around as long as he has now, like the end of the bench. He does fill a role and he has made some big plays defensively and in a late game situation, there's value in having that type of player uh, defensively and on the base pass. I understand it was real brutal getting picked off the way that he did on Saturday. And I thought, you know, pinch running in that situation in the seventh inning with a runner on first. And I believe it was one out. I didn't love that decision. I thought that that was a little bit trigger happy. I thought that that was too premature and it almost ended up, you know, coming back to bite you in the butt, but he's been as an end of roster guy, he has merit. Like I, I would sure I'd rather a player who brought more to the table in theory, but when you're talking about essentially a scrub at the end of your bench, what are you hoping for? Like if he was good, he'd be playing more or on a team that needed him more. Like that's an end of the bench guy, fill one or two roles well. And when your number is called to do those things, do them well. And that's why the pickoff was so egregious, but like, I'm not going to look back on Bradley Zimmer as some, you know, tire fire mistake. Like Anthony Castro has done zilch in Cleveland and Bradley Zimmer has had some valuable moments. So whenever he ends up, you know, I assume getting DFA'd or what have you, I don't think it's like one of these things where it's like, oh, thank God Bradley Zimmer's uh, off the roster. Um, you know, that guy was no good. He brought zero to the table. It wasn't great, but like, I don't think it's, I really don't think it's as bad as a lot of people are making it out and have made it out to be. Yeah, and it's not as if he's, you know, playing every day. Exactly. Um, you know, he played a lot in, you know, March, uh, sorry, April and May, uh, because he had to uh, with the Blue Jays injuries to, you know, Teoscar Hernandez, uh, George Springer was banged up for a bit there. But, you know, since 
June 1st, he's uh, had 22 plate appearances. Yeah. Like he's not out there uh, to get a ton of ABs. He's been a defensive replacement a lot of these times. So um, his play time, playing time has gone down a lot since the beginning uh, of the season where the Blue Jays relied on him quite heavily due to injuries. Uh, let's get one more here. And on a positive note, uh, Alejandro Kirk Stan tweets us at DFA underscore pod says, other than the Jays playing a full season in Toronto for the first time since 2019, what was your most intriguing Jays storyline from the first? First half, he says, uh, if this makes sense, by the way, love the podcast. I think I get it. Like what, you know, stood out to us the most in the first half uh, of the season. I think for me, you know, it's probably Alejandro Kirk. I mean, uh, the guy uh, was so terrible in the first month of the season. We were wondering, you know, is this guy, can you even trade him at this point? Like, is he going to have to go down to the minors and he becomes an all-star? He's the starting catcher for the American League in Los Angeles tomorrow night. Um, It's just been uh, a meteoric rise uh, for him. He has become, I don't say, I was going to say untradeable, but then we talked about, uh, you know, Juan Soto. I would gladly move. Uh, Alejandro Kirk in a trade yeah. for uh, Juan Soto, but he has worked himself into that conversation at least where you wonder, you know, what type of player would you have to move, uh, sorry, acquire in order to move a guy like Alejandro Kirk. So for me, uh, I'll uh, play up to the Twitter name. I think Kirk is my favorite story of the first half. Yeah, I think that that's a solid pick. I'll go with uh, Alec Manoa just emerging as He's this, he's this team stopper. If you're on a skid or want to continue or keep a streak going, a winning streak, he's a guy you want out there. He's going to give you a real good chance to win every time. Even if he doesn't have his A stuff, he's going to grind it out. It's been nothing short of remarkable to essentially come immediately in the meat grinder of the American League East as a you know pitcher who didn't have that much professional experience and just be nails basically every time. Like if he goes less than six innings, it's a surprise. If he doesn't give you a quality start, it's a surprise. And that is insane to me that, you know, I know he's a little bit more mature in that sense. Like he's not in his early twenties necessarily uh, anymore. Like he's not 20, 21. He's, you know, getting closer to 23, 24, but it's just, it's been so, so great to see. And he's just embrace the situation pitching here pitching in front of a country fans love him rightfully so you know he feeds off of it it's just the perfect you know marriage between fan base and player he's going to be a folk hero here for a long 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 time yeah can't see him moving in any deal at this point even for a Juan Soto it'd be very very difficult to have that conversation and actually pull the trigger Let's get to our Teoscars for Player of the Week. Got a bunch of uh, candidates as the Blue Jays actually won some ball games, so we were able to talk about some fun stuff. Uh, Matt Chapman with a, a nice week for the Blue Jays at the plate with a pair of home runs, five RBI. Teoscar Hernandez, three dingers, 10 RBIs in the last uh, six games for the Blue Jays. And then uh, Jose Barrios with uh, another strong week for him, 12 innings, a 3.65 ERA. The strikeouts just off the chart back for Jose Barrios, which is a, a nice sight to see. And then three bullpen arms I wanted to throw in there. Trevor Richards, Jimmy Garcia, Tim Meza, all with uh, scoreless outings over the last uh, week for the Blue Jays as the pen has uh, definitely stepped up of late. Where are you going with your uh, Tay Oscar this week, Josh? I'm going to go with Trevor Richards. I, I understand that you know a lot of those other guys um, you know, are it's more prominent, their performances. You know, Trevor Richards, it's mostly been lower leverage. But since he came off the uh, IL for, and I'm using air quotes here, uh, that next strain, he hasn't given up a run in seven innings, 12 strikeouts. He's only given up two hits, four walks. He's lowered his season ERA a full run. Uh, you know, it was 6.3. Now it's 5.3, which is still very bad. But, uh, you know, maybe he's figured something out. His stuff looks better. His fastball looks better. His changeup's been very good. His command's been better, which was an issue. Hopefully that's something because, you know, he was a reliable sixth, seventh inning, even eighth inning guy. And you need guys like that sometimes to bridge a little bit. And if he can work his way back into that role, that is a very positive development. He needs to start doing it against, you know, tougher lineups, tougher opponents, higher leverage spots, but definitely positive, intriguing, encouraging building blocks in the month of July so far. So I'm going to give it to Trevor Richards. 
Yeah, it's a great option with uh, Trevor Richards for sure. Uh, I'll give it to Jose Barrios once again. I mean, he's clearly turned a corner. Now, he didn't have to face off against the uh, Omaha Storm Chasers uh, on Sunday, so yeah. obviously got a, a bit of a break there. But, I mean, 13 strikeouts against the Phillies lineup that had um, some pretty strong players uh, in that lineup, uh, even though they were a little bit depleted without JT Real Muto and, of course, Bryce Harper, but still some scary guys there. 13 Ks in that one, 7 Ks against the Royals. It does seem as if he has found something. I mean, the breaking ball uh, looks ridiculous right now. So that uh, is a big development for this Blue Jays rotation moving forward if Jose Barrios is back. So he will get my Teoscar for this week. All right, that does it for another edition of the Designated for Assignment podcast. Uh, Enjoy the uh, all-star break, everyone. We'll uh, get to you in a week's time as the Blue Jays are back in action, kicking things off with the Boston Red Sox this weekend as they have another big series against the team trying to chase them in the wild card standings. As always, you can find us on the uh, Twitter machine at DFA underscore pod at Rob Wong 34 and at Jay Goldberg 12. For Josh Goldberg, I'm Rob Wong. We'll talk to you in a week's time.